Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauck, and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. The fire burned steadily within the Athenor, the cylindrical brick furnace at the center of the alchemist's laboratory. Midway up the Athenor, two holes glowed like eyes gazing out into the darkened room, while occasional puffs of falling ash issued from a wider opening below. On top sat a huge glass retort, its single opening stopped with clay. Inside the glass, a heavy mass of dark green mud folded about itself in slow, swirling currents. The writhing blob of matter was known as the first matter, and represented months of hard work roasting, pulverizing, dissolving, and breaking down materials said to contain the mysterious essence. This primordial, chaotic mass was the goal of all alchemists and they believed that once they had isolated enough first matter, they could purify it and produce the magical sorcerer's stone that would in turn perfect anything. Of course, just how to accumulate and purify the first matter was the greatest secret in alchemy. Along the wall to the right of the Athenor, two shelves stretched the length of the room. The upper shelf held the dried carcasses of assorted frogs, birds, and rats, while less identifiable creatures peered out from preservative-filled jars. The alchemists believed the life force was a subtle substance that could be separated from living things and used to impart health to others or even give life to inanimate objects. Many famous alchemists claimed to have created little beings, called humunculi, by infusing the life force into flasks of chemical compounds. On the lower shelf along the same wall were assorted vials, vessels, crocks, and burlap bags holding various powders and liquids, each one carefully marked with a unique symbol. Linger too long in this section of the lab, however, and your senses were overcome by a biting odor like a mixture of rotten eggs and vinegar. Many alchemists became gravely ill by experimenting with unknown compounds and caustic metals. One ill-fated British alchemist used to demonstrate the affinity of mercury for gold by sticking his big toe in a saucer of mercury while holding a gold coin in his mouth. Within a half hour, the coin was coated with a silvery layer of mercury that had traveled through his blood and lymph nodes. Unfortunately, he was only able to perform the task a few times before he died of mercury poisoning. Beneath the two long shelves in the laboratory sat a narrow workbench piled with odd-looking utensils and glass beakers that contained assorted powders. At the center of the bench, next to a small herb press, a balancing scale seesawed aimlessly caught in a passing draft of air. Meanwhile, in the dark space underneath the table, an iron cauldron full of decomposing organic matter gurgled suspiciously. This tub was known as the digester, in which materials were allowed to rot and break down by an alchemical operation called putrefaction. Against the opposite wall, there stood two sturdy bookcases stuffed with stained papers, old manuscripts, and leather-bound books. Between the bookcases, an empty chair sat in front of a broad wooden desk. On the cluttered desktop, next to an open notebook, a quill pen waited patiently in its inkwell. This is where the alchemist recorded the results of his experiments, using not only measurements and the written word, but bizarre diagrams and drawings of eerie creatures and mythological figures intended to capture the experience on as many levels of interpretation as possible. On the back wall of our medieval laboratory, a bewildering array of glass vessels hung supported on wooden pegs. Flasks, beakers, cylinders, and retorts of all sizes spread across the entire wall. 
Nearby, a cluttered array of copper tubing zigzagged up from a thick pear-shaped clay vessel on the floor. Known as a serpent condenser, the giant air-cooled apparatus was used for distilling the small-smelling uh, solution poured off from the digester. Distillation purified in even the foulest liquid and also concentrated the strength of whatever essences were present. Not only could one make alcoholic spirits and essential oils using distillation, but also produce specific herbal tinctures and elixirs as well. Next to the serpent condenser, a large dark curtain hung suspended from the ceiling and was carefully draped completely around a small altar on the floor. This tent or tabernacle formed a private meditation space for the alchemist, and as much work was done within this sacred tabernacle as was carried on in the laboratory. Alchemists spent many hours in solitary contemplation, attempting to purify and focus their minds. Hidden somewhere in the meditation area of the laboratory could usually be found the alchemist incubator. This insulated, copper-clad wooden box was perhaps the most sacred spot in the lab. The sealed container, kept warm by the fermenting matter within it, was where the alchemist directed his thoughts and visualizations. It was during the process of fermentation that the magical first matter was most exposed and most open to the influence of the alchemist. However, if anyone other than the alchemist touched or even looked upon this box, all was lost. In the beginning, the subject of the alchemist's work was easily corrupted by another's impure thoughts, which is why alchemists always kept his work secret, even to other alchemists. The alchemist's consciousness is a force in nature that can be harnessed and purified through prayer and meditation and then added to the experiment just like a chemical ingredient. This esoteric part of the experiment is absolutely necessary and explains why many alchemical experiments cannot be duplicated in a chemical laboratory. Chemistry operates by rearranging atoms like so many billiard balls, a methodology much too crude for the alchemist. From the alchemist's viewpoint, chemistry is an artificial science that deals only with the external forms in which the elements manifest. Modern chemists who believe the, their experiments take place only on the physical level see no need to purify themselves or meditate prior to an experiment. To an alchemist, on the other hand, entering a laboratory emotionally upset or focused on one's ego and not the greater universal pattern to be revealed in the experiment destroys the delicate connection with the subtle level of reality on which the alchemist hopes to work. In other words, the alchemist's attitude has a lot to do with the outcome of the experiment. This idea is very similar to the observer effect, a proven tenet of quantum physics, in which the expectations of the experimenter have been shown to influence the outcome of experiments in nuclear physics. This atomic level of reality can best be considered more subtle or spiritual than gross physical levels at which we all live. Yet somehow the alchemist knew that consciousness was the tool through which man could access that invisible level beneath our everyday reality. Like a modern quantum physicist, the alchemist is always looking for the most subtle level of reality, the deepest underlying pattern that explains physical reality. From our modern materialistic viewpoint, it is hard to imagine how much a part of their experiments were the alchemist. All matter was alive, and they sympathized with the subject of their work every time they exposed it to fire, submerged it in acid, or bathed it in cool waters. When working at the Athenor, 
They breathed in unison with their bellows, keeping in deep breaths and exhaling evenly as the air rushed out of the narrow spout of the bellows to fan the fire. When the fire needed to be hotter and the pace of squeezing quickened, so did the alchemist's breathing, until the sound of the bellows and the alchemist's lungs merged into a single cadence. As the temperature of the fire increased, so did the glowing warmth in the alchemist's body. The uncanny identification with the processes in the laboratory was absolutely essential. The alchemist and his work fed on each other. The alchemist suffered with his work, felt its same temperament, and changed with it. For if the experiment was truly a success, the alchemist too was transformed. The key to this whole magical process was the conscious connection or correspondence the alchemist was able to forge between his own mind and the mind of nature as ex expressed in the experiment. The alchemist's idea of the mind of nature was very similar to our modern notion of evolution. Over time, nature seems to be perfecting itself. It may take millions of years, but eventually a species transforms itself in response to some great need, and a new species, more able to survive in the world, comes into existence. The great work of alchemy has always been to find ways to speed up this natural process of perfection. In the words of the modern French alchemist Jean de Bois, alchemy is the art of manipulating life and consciousness and matter to help it evolve or to solve problems of inner disharmonies. The alchemist believed that everything carries the energetic seed or pattern of its own perfection and is the job of the alchemist to resurrect these essences of perfection that are trapped in matter to bring them to light and allow their full expression in time and space. They see this guidance pattern of perfection as an inner spirit that exists in all matter from a dull gray lump of lead to a living human being. In the alchemical view, matter is alive and the metals grow naturally in the earth's interior furnace by an alchemical process that act on the first matter. Since all things in nature are charged with the divine spirit or life force and therefore aspire to higher, more perfect states, metals too gradually evolve over time. The alchemists believed that the metals actually grew inside the earth. The first form of the metals is the base metal lead, which evolves into tin, which evolves into iron, which becomes copper, then mercury, then silver, and finally culminating in gold, the most matured metal. Gold was the final perfection of all the metals, as indicated by its beauty and superior properties. In other words, by natural processes, the metals transmuted from baser or lower metals, such as lead and tin, into more noble or higher metals, such as silver and gold. The alchemist's task, therefore, is to speed up nature's work by transforming the metals in the laboratory into higher forms. Such artificial transmutation by the alchemist were believed to encourage the overall pattern of transformation on our planet and contribute to the evolution of everything, including human beings. To alchemists, the whole universe is slowly evolving towards perfection. What makes humans different from ordinary matter is that we can consciously participate in our own process of transformation. Since we are all part of nature, we all participate in alchemy whether we know it or not. We can proceed as alchemists and try to intentionally manifest our perfected nature, or we can spend our lives or lifetimes unconsciously cycling through the worldly experience that finally bring inner spiritual resources to the surface. In this sense, 
Alchemy is really a science of soul, a truly unique discipline in the history of the world that combines the tools of both science and religion and uses both intellect and intuition. According to this deeper tradition, the goal of alchemy is hastened perfection in the highest sense, the divinization of matter and of human beings. In the most basic sense of the word, alchemy is simply the art of transformation. It is an art in the sense that it seeks change not by mechanically forcing nature to do its will, but rather by encouraging certain latent patterns to come alive and grow. The alchemists viewed the growth of minerals, plants, animals, and the, or the evolution of a whole species as an alchemical process going on in the laboratory of nature. Indeed, for the alchemist, all matter is alive and has the potential for growth and change. Anyone who works creatively with matter comes to the realization that it is alive to some extent. Craftspeople and artists know the materials they use have an inner life of their own, unique histories, properties, and possibilities. They realize they must feel and understand this life so a creative relationship exists between them. So in the final analysis, alchemy is an art that can only be practiced by those who possess the artist tools the inspired presence and purified imagination necessary for creative transformation. While the laboratory procedures necessary for alchemical preparations may be taught to just about anybody, in much the same way as a chemist learns formulas from textbooks, the results that such a person could accomplish would be without life, and no alchemical transformation into something new and fundamentally different could take place. 